April 9, 1989 was just another day on the field for Juan Benitez Ayala and his federal officers. Following a tip-off from U.S. Customs that drugs had come into Brownsville from this part of Matamoros, they'd stationed the day's roadblock just east of the city located in Tamaulipas, Mexico. Ayala was spearheading an operation with the DEA that promised to be one of the largest drug raids the two agencies had executed. Since March, they'd been mounting roadblocks, searching cars, and making sure no drugs were crossing the border. It had been an uneventful day, that is, till a truck ran right through the checkpoint. The policeman looked after the vehicle in perplexity and shock. Did he not see them? Quickly, the officers hopped into their vehicle and chased the truck till it drew to a stop at a ranch. It was the Rancho Santa Elena, a property owned by the Hernandez family. Drugs were seized. People were arrested. But what was supposed to be an ordinary drug bust took a major turn for the worse when policemen spotted a lone wooden structure 400 feet away. The unmistakable stench of rotting flesh filled the air as they warily approached the building. They powered through it, at the entrance to the shed was a cauldron. Within it were sticks, a dead black cat, the head of a goat, and a human brain, all floating on a thick, bloody fluid with chunks of flesh. The men turned and ran, making the sign of the cross. One, overcome with the horrors he witnessed, began vomiting. In their wake, Ayala shouted, Get me a curandero! No one steps foot in here until this place has been cleansed by a curandero. A curandero is a medicine man. Welcome to Homicide, Inc. This is episode 40, part one of a two-part series. Thanks so much for tuning in, as always. We've got a chilling true crime story once again from south of the border. We're turning back the clocks to the mid-1980s in Matamoros, Mexico. The story is about a murderous cult leader. Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo, also known as El Padrino, the Godfather. His group were known as Narco-Satanists. They were a cult that was involved in multiple ritualistic killings, including the murder of Mark Kilroy, an American student that was abducted, tortured, and killed in 1989. Fasten your safety belts and get your air sickness bags ready because this is a story not for the faint of heart. Across the border in Brownsville, Texas, a young woman had hurriedly booked plane tickets to Mexico. Are we ready? I can't find it. I can't find my passport. Meet us in Mexico. We don't have time for this shit. She watched them as they scuttled out of the Holiday Inn there in Brownsville. They'd been laying low since the news broke, but the noose seemed to be tightening. Their options were limited, but at least in Mexico, they had more followers willing to protect them. A waiting car took the men to the airport, leaving the woman in its dust. She looked down on herself, shaken. Just a few weeks before, her tall, athletic build had been the pride of Texas Southmost College, a darling honor student and cheerleader. Now, years spent perfecting her double life were gone. Her long dark hair was cut and tinted blonde 
in an attempt to disguise her face. A face that the U.S. and Mexican police were now on the lookout for. She was only known as one thing now. La Madrina. The Godmother. Twenty-four years earlier, long before being given the title of La Madrina, Sara Aldrete was born the first of three daughters to a Catholic family in Matamoros, Mexico, in September 1964. While still living in Mexico, Aldrete attended high school just across the border in Brownsville, Texas, USA. At the age of 14, she met her childhood sweetheart, Elio Hernandez Rivera. Remember the name, it's very important. The teen romance didn't last. Puppy love never does. By 19, Aldrete dated and married Miguel Zacarias on Halloween 1983. It was a short-lived affair, and in five months, citing irreconcilable differences, I'm citing a Halloween curse. Who gets married on Halloween? Aldrete was back in her parents' home in Matamoros. Now an American citizen, thanks to her marriage. There, she constructed a special outside stairway to her second-floor room. For privacy, she had said. At 21, she enrolled in college and became a student of Texas Southmost College through a work-study program that allowed her to attend school while working in the school. Ever the overachiever, Aldrete took on two part-time jobs as an aerobics teacher and an assistant secretary in the school's athletic department while majoring in P.E. There, she excelled as an honor student with a top GPA. She was also president of the women's volleyball club and got listed in the school's directory of who's who. She had it going on. She planned to complete the two-year study and then transferred to a four-year school for a physical education teaching certificate. There's an expression that those who can't do, teach. Those who can't teach, teach P.E. But Sarah Aldrete was going places, and no one would stop her. All that changed in the summer of 87, when a shiny new Mercedes cut her off in traffic. She slammed on the brakes, narrowly missing a collision. A svelte, handsome form exited the Mercedes. He was apologetic and contrite. His name, he said, was Adolfo Constanzo. Could he buy her lunch as an apology? Aldrete was curious, intrigued and attracted to the charming stranger. They got to talking, and he seemed to know so much about her. He knew she didn't drink, and even told her that her then-boyfriend, Gilberto Sosa, a drug dealer associated with the Hernandez family, would break up with her. How could he be so sure? Through, of all things, tarot cards. And boom! Just like he had said, two weeks later, her boyfriend Sosa dumped her. He had received a mysterious call that she was cheating on him. Her denials fell on deaf ears. Distraught, she turned to her new friend for solace, the one who had predicted it all. The guy from the Mercedes? Constanzo. One of the topics that intrigued her the most was his demonstrated ability in the occult. She had taken an anthropology class in college and was desperate to know more. By the end of the summer, her schoolmates started to notice a slight change in behavior with Aldrete. 
She had seemingly become an expert in all things witchcraft. She started to wear black and got a new car, one of the pricier ones at the time that had a phone in it. Keep in mind, this is still the mid-1980s. Her parents would only discover that her room, up on the second floor, had become an occult wonderland, complete with a blood-splattered altar, when her crimes were revealed and the search for her began. Aldrete had mastered how to maintain her two separate lives perfectly. Detectives would say that she had two distinct personalities, the innocent-faced girl she put on for the camera and the one she bared for the interrogations. But her mask slipped from time to time. Once, after a fun night out drinking while in school, Sarah persuaded three male friends to watch a movie together called The Believers, a 1987 horror movie about a cult with Paolo Mayombe origins that believed in child sacrifice to gain money and power. After the movie, the friends said she stood up and started preaching in a strange tone about the occult. They'd thought maybe she just had a bit too much to drink, but Andrete had been trying to recruit members into the cult. The movie was instrumental to Aldrete and Constanzo, and they often watched it with their followers as some sort of visual Bible of their practices. Eventually, Constanzo and Aldrete would end up in bed together, but Constanzo told her he was not a one-woman man, or, as you'll find out later, a one-man man for that matter. Aldrete didn't care, she had already fallen hard and was bound to him by the ties of their shared interest in his religion. Aldrete felt this was fate. She and Constanzo were meant to be. What Aldrete didn't know was that that fate was a carefully orchestrated sequence of events planned by Constanzo. He wanted to enter a partnership with the Hernandez family, and Aldrete had the key. The Hernandez family ran a massive drug operation ring in Matamoros, Tamaulipas. The leader of the operation, Saul Hernandez, had recently been killed in a drive-by shootout and the group was tearing themselves apart. This was Constanzo's opportunity. He was brilliant, which was why he needed Aldrete. She had had a relationship with one of the Hernandez brothers, Elio Hernandez, the one that was her amour when she was 14. I told you not to forget the name, right? And if he played his cards right, he would have the Hernandezes at his boots. If there was one thing Constanzo knew, it was how to pull the right cards. Let's back up a bit. Constanzo was the first of three boys born to Delia Aurora Gonzalez del Valle, a.k.a. Aurora Gonzalez Constanzo, a.k.a. Delia Posolo. Yeah, she had a few aliases. After immigrating from Cuba at age 15, she settled in tropical Dade County, Miami, Florida. Constanzo was still an infant when his father died, and Delia took her young son and moved to San Juan, Puerto Rico. There she met and married her second husband, with whom she had her second son. Constanzo was baptized in the Catholic Church and even served as an altar boy at Mass on Sundays. Hard to believe when this story begins unfolding. When he was ten, 
Dahlia moved the family back to Miami, Florida, where they lived in Little Havana, where husband number two soon died, leaving a comfortable inheritance behind. Dahlia remarried again. Oh God, who's going to warn him? Fortunately, or unfortunately, this father lived. He was a drug trafficker and practitioner of Paolo Mayombe. He became Constanzo's guide into the religion. Up until then, Delia had guided her son in the teachings of Santeria. Santeria and Palamayombe are both Afro-Cuban religions. Palamayombe is believed to have arisen in the early 1500s from the Congo religion of the Bakong people, a region across Central Africa spanning parts of Gabon, Angola, the Republic of Congo, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, while Santeria rose in the 1900s from the Yoruba people of Nigeria. Though different in their ways, there are a lot of similarities between Santeria and Palomayombe. They're both amoral, in that worshippers have no distinctive moral compass of wrong and right. They both involve the ritual use of animal remains. But Palomayombe went a step further. They use human skeletal remains in order to possess the soul of the dead. These are usually retrieved from graves and would be placed in an iron or clay pot called an nganga. The nganga was an altar to contact the spirit realm and pray to deities. It is believed to hold the essence of the spirits, and by sacrificing certain items to the cauldron, its priest could attract various blessings. The priest could then contact the spirit realm and worship deities through the nganga, using the items placed in it. Earthly items like sticks, earth, and bones go into the nganga. But that's not all that goes in. Human hair, nails, animal parts, scorpion parts, among others, have been found in ngangas. In all, about a million enslaved Africans were brought to Cuba to work on the many plantations across the island. Even though Roman Catholicism was the only religion that could be practiced openly, the slaves clung to their religious traditions as best they could, even with being forced to practice catechism. After all, it was all that they had connecting them to home. It also definitely helped that they could use it to curse their masters. As time passed, both religions got mixed with parts of Catholicism and Espiritismo. The religion became widespread in the 1960s after the Cuban Revolution, with millions of Cubans migrating to the Americas. Latino communities, black and white Americans were all receiving of the religion, especially in New York and Miami. Delia didn't neglect her Cuban roots. As early as six months old, she had had Constanzo blessed by a Haitian priest of the Palamayombe religion while they lived in Miami. Even while in Puerto Rico, she would take nine-year-old Constanzo with her on trips to Haiti, where she and her son learned from its practitioners and priests of Santeria, often making young Constanzo kill animals and rewarding him with praises when he did so. In 1972, the neighbors in Little Havana started noticing strange things going on in their neighborhood. Headless goats and chickens on doorsteps right beside your Miami Herald newspaper. The streets would be littered with corpses of geese and the discarded carcasses of dead animals. A woman rented a house on the street and found an altar and remains of sacrificed animals and ritualism scattered all around the residence. 
its previous owner, Dela Constanzo. Neighbors whispered that Delia was a witch, and a lot of the houses that woke up to dead headless animals at the doorsteps were people she had quarreled with and attempted to curse. So the neighbors avoided her, and little Constanzo never had anyone to play with. Delia was also a habitual criminal. She had been arrested close to 30 times from numerous charges, ranging from trespassing to shoplifting, check fraud, grand theft, and child neglect. Numerous as these charges were, the charges just never seemed to stick. She credited this to her religion. The apple didn't fall too far from the tree, and Constanzo, for his part, spent his teens cruising gay bars and indulging in petty crimes. Aided by his mother, in 1976 Constanzo started walking the path from the Santeria to Paolo Mayombe. As a teenager, he became a full-time apprentice to a Haitian priest in Little Havana. He had no interest in school and graduated near the bottom of his class. Constanzo's real interest lay elsewhere, learning the secrets of witchcraft from his new stepfather and palero. Together, they would rob graves for bones and spill the blood of animals over voodoo dolls as they cursed their enemies. One council constantly told him, Let the non-believers kill themselves with drugs. We will profit from their foolishness. At twenty-one, his mother performed the final initiation on him and presented him with his very own nganga. Mystic symbols were carved into his flesh as he proclaimed for all to hear, My soul is dead. I have no God. After school, and with little else to go on, Constanzo started life as a male model. He was a charismatic, attractive man, and quickly scored some good-paying gigs. In 1983, a modeling assignment took him to Mexico. There he spent his free time in Zona Rosa, a popular hangout for prostitutes, telling fortunes with tarot cards. It was there he recruited his first disciples, Martin Quintana Rodriguez, a psychic, Jorge Montes, and Omar Orea Ochoa, who was obsessed with the occult before leaving for Miami. He was 21. They were all 15. In 1984, he moved back to Mexico City and opened a shop as a tarot card reader, quickly moving up the career chain to Paula Mayombe Priest. His good looks and charisma instantly made him a hit in the city. He attracted the rich, the famous, and the high-ranking law enforcers, including a commander in charge of narcotics investigation, head of the Mexican branch of Interpol, and three members of the federal judicial police. Constanzo would offer to read their future and cleanse them from curses for sweet, sweet cash. Bad as he was at school, he kept a record of his transactions. He had 31 regular customers who would pay as much as 4500 bucks for a single ceremony. On the menu for the sacrifice, rooster heads for 6 bucks, goats for 30, boa constrictors for 450, zebras for $1100, African lion cubs for $3100. He had wealthy clients from high society, celebrities including actors, a famed hairdresser, and most notably, singer Yuri, as well as wealthy drug dealers, 
helping them schedule shipments based on his predictions, making their bodyguards invisible to the fuzz, making their bodies bulletproof. Who needs Kevlar? In reality, Constanzo constantly bribed law enforcement officials to protect his clients. But the dealer who paid him 40000 bucks for his magical services for three years didn't need to know that. But you don't score such clients without a little pizzazz, and Constanzo rose to the occasion. He would raid the Mexico City graveyard for human bones to start filling his nganga. It worked. The publicizing of his rituals in the dark underworld drew in the creme de la creme of the crime world. In 1986, Constanzo scored his biggest client yet, the drug-dealing Calzada family. They were one of Mexico's dominant narcotics cartels at the time. They were his big break. By 87, Constanzo paid $60,000 cash for a condo in Mexico, decorating it with a fleet of luxury cars, including an $80,000 Mercedes-Benz. But Constanzo didn't relegate himself to witchcraft. He was a criminal entrepreneur. Once he made 100000 bucks by posing as a DEA agent to seize cocaine from a Guadalajara cocaine dealer and then selling the stash using his police contacts. Soon, to impress and retain his followers, Constanzo began to add his mix to the ritual ceremonies. You see, the raiding of graveyards just wasn't enough. Constanzo wanted actual human sacrifices to be made to his nganga. Victims ranged from rival dealers, ex-lovers, cult members who disobeyed him, kidnapped strangers, and even children. It wasn't long before Constanzo started to believe his own hype, forgetting all the under-the-table monies he paid for inside information and bribing police to look the other way. He started to believe that his magical powers were responsible for the wealth and success enjoyed by the Calzada family, the family that had dominated the narcotic space even before his arrival. In April of 87, Constanzo demanded to be taken on as a full partner in the powerful syndicate. He was curtly denied. Being paid to dribble blood around and make incantations was one thing. A full-on partnership? <laughs> Quite another. The following month in May, police received reports that Guillermo Calzada Sanchez and six members of the Calzada family had gone missing. At the scene of the crime, the Calzada office at the scene of the crime, the Calzada office, police noted melted candles and other strange items. It all pointed to a religious ceremony. It would be six days before police would be drawn to the Zumpango River, where they fished out mutilated remains of human bodies. In a week, seven bodies of the missing Calzadas were recovered. The bodies showed signs of violent torture, with fingers, toes, and ears removed. The bodies were missing their brains, and in one case, part of a spine had been ripped out. It turns out the missing parts had gone to feed Constanza's Nganga. He was fortifying himself for a new possible cartel partnership with the Hernandez brothers. A decade before, 
The Hernandez brothers were poor farmers near the village of San Fernando, 20 miles from Matamoros. Serafin, Senor, Saul, Ovidio, and Elio had all grown and lived in poverty in the village, and they would have stayed that way if not for the second of the four brothers, Saul Hernandez Rivera. You see, Saul had the moxie, the skill, the connections to push one simple idea. Why didn't they farm marijuana? Ten years later, the family was swimming in it. They drove expensive cars and owned ranches and villas all over Mexico. The family had grown, too, and there were dozens of Hernandezes living on both sides of the border, in Mexico as well as in Brownsville, Texas. The eldest, Hernandez, Serafin Senor, managed operations in the U.S., but Saul was the man in charge. All of that came to the point of vanishing when Saul found himself on the receiving end of a rain of bullets after dining at his favorite place to eat, the Juan Guerreres restaurant, in January of 87. The family fell apart. Serafin Senor tried to assume leadership, but he was clueless. Just a month after Saul's murder, he was arrested after a failed attempt to land dope on an airstrip. On the Mexican side, Elio, the youngest brother, seized power. Members of the Hernandez family were torn between staying loyal to Serafin or falling in with Elio. Other problems began to arise in the family. A cousin kidnapped another cousin in the family for pocketing 800,000 bucks that belonged to him. Police were circling another family member for his part in a shootout. Everything seemed to be falling apart for the Hernandez clan, and it all pointed to one thing. Someone had hexed them. In the world of drugs and money in Mexico, there was really only one solution that would work. Protection, and not the Kevlar kind. There was one person in Elio's life who knew the kind of magic protection Elio might need, and her name was Sara Maria Aldrete Villarreal, which was why one month before, in a move that Aldrete thought was fate, Constanza had wiggled his way into her mind, heart, and her bed. And so, when in November 1987, Elio Hernandez reached out to Aldrete to get some advice about his problem. Well, she introduced him to Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo. And that is the end of part one of our story on the Matamoros cult murders. Ugh, it's a horrific story. And it gets so much better in part two. I can't wait to read it to you. Thanks very much for tuning in to the Homicide Inc. True Crime Podcast. If you like this type of podcast, please consider subscribing and be sure to check out our Patreon campaign for more Homicide Inc. podcasts that are available only to patrons. That info is in the description of this podcast. And if you have a compelling true crime story you'd like me to consider investigating, please send me an email. And if you'd like to help support the production of the Homicide Inc. podcast, you can always buy me a coffee. Those details are also in the description and on the Homicide Inc. website. Thanks so much, and we'll be seeing you again very soon with Episode 2 of the Matamoros Cult Murders. Ciao for now.